A Penair Saab 2000 crashes on landing to Unalaska. What caused this flight to skid off the end of the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. We have patrons to thank! Yes, um, we do! I think on. we have three. One of them came back. Welcome back. And two of them are new, I believe. Welcome new. <laughs> welcome back, half. Yes, half. And welcome to Sahar. And Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Thank Hello! You. Thank you for being patron. Hello! BT dubs, the Miranda Sode will be coming. I have been stressed out and busy and i get it my notes are half done i get it <laughs> so the one for january will be coming soon i just gotta get my together we can sit and relax in belgium and just do some notes someday <laughs> <laughs> so just be aware it's coming i realize it hasn't come out yet i'm sorry i am a disaster so i get it disaster there's been a lot of stressful stuff that's happened, and I could talk about it on the post episode, but yeah. Yeah. Yay. Woo! Listener stories. We need those now. Yes. We have gotten a few more, um, but we need more. There will be a listener episode coming out, hopefully. Or two. I Yes, we have two have, recorded. Again, disaster. I get it. So <laughs> I'll post those, like, you should have been able to hear them by now. At least one of them, because yes. one of them's done, so. We have two of them, and I think they're fantastic, so. They're pretty great. We appreciate you sending stories. And if you have stories, send like, stories. Send stories. It could be crazy, guys. It really I don't could. care. Really could. Actually, I like the stories that are crazy because, like, the tea. Like, I uh-huh. need to know the makes, tea. Makes our lives sound boring. <laughs> <laughs> also, I find a weird, sick, sad pleasure in the fact that y'all talk to each other via your stories. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I like it. Y'all are reaching out to one another now. Make sure you check out the newsletter, answer the trivia questions. Kaylin, thank you for getting all of them correct. Thank you. Yeah. She's not the only one who answered them, but she is like, she titled her email to us like, trivia answers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And she got them all right. There was one person who was like, I normally answer these and I know none of them. Yes. Yeah. So toward the end of the month, we'll give you the answers to those. So if you have access, check those out and see if you know the answers and you can wait till the end of the month to hear them. Right. All right. I think that's all. Which will be next week. Yes. Okay. So next week. Next week. If we remember. Because February is short. Oh, you're right. (laughs) Guys, I'm I'm not mentally prepared. For anything. For neither. Exactly nothing. Don't have just to be, want to make that clear. Don't have to be mentally prepared for much. You just sometimes have to do it. <laughs> okay. With that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Pen Air Flight 3296. Thank you to our patron, Alan, for recommending this. Thank you. I'm sure you didn't expect to hear it this soon, but... uh, We had some changes of plan. And we, we didn't want to move everything, so right. we just advanced one. Yes, we inserted far. this one... And everything else remains the same. So, this one also is known as Alaska Air Flight 3296. We'll talk about why that is in a little bit. Okay. This accident happened on October 17th of 2019. Mm. That was just nine days before we started this podcast. Wow. Uh, wait, 17th? Yes. Five days. Five days? Five days before we started Five the podcast. Five days. Five days before we started the podcast. Wait. The first episode aired October 22nd. Oh. Did it? Yeah. Wow, I don't remember. Wait, I, I have the talk- list up. I know it was October. <laughs> it was October 22nd. Okay. October 22nd of 2019, we started. This was October 17th. So yeah, just five days before. That's so crazy, guys. That's so weird to me. That's so weird. <laughs> Who'd have thought this far on, we're covering one that happened just days before we actually started this whole roller coaster. Did we even talk about this when we... No. No. Not at all. This is the first time I've heard of it. Yeah. And, uh, so I knew about it at the time. It didn't get a whole lot of attention unless you lived in Alaska or were in the aviation community because it wasn't a very high profile airline or accident. No, but, but it, it has... means we lied to everyone. We'll talk about why we lied to everybody when I get to the end of the story. We've been lying to you since episode four. One. <laughs> no, episode one. Oh, did we say that? <laughs> Did we say it in episode one? We probably talked about it on episode one, if not episode four at the very latest, but... I'm sorry. I feel like we talked about this enough. Yeah, we 
Well, I knew. Nick knew. <laughs> I knew. I knew this whole time we've been lying. The whole reason. So I really have. I really have knew, known we've been lying. There's some reasons, though, because we've actually talked about another episode that quote unquote. No, 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 no. Makes it so we're lying. There was a specific phrasing that made it so we weren't lying. But you per knew se. we were lying. But yes, I knew we were lying. How could you let this happen? Because and still to this day, for the most part, what we say holds true. Because this is really an anomaly. I can change the phrasing to make it correct. (laughs) Yes. Anyways, I'm sure you're all very confused at this point, kind of. We'll get there. This was a Saab 2000, which is a relatively rare type of aircraft. Oh, you, you've the got Miranda something. The Miranda covers a Saab. All right. Hey. Not a Saab 2000. No, probably not. I don't remember what the it more is, common type the of this, The more common type of aircraft is the Saab 340. Oh, I think it, the one I cover is a 340. Probably. The Saab 340 is vastly more popular. It fits in the 19-seat market, which is a very weirdly specific number of seats market that exists. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, the Landart that we always refer to. Is a 19-seat airplane. It's a Metroliner. Yes, the, the Metroliner. If you don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, the Metroliner is a 19-seat airplane. The Saab 340 is a 19-seat airplane. The Jetstream 31 was a 19-seat airplane. There's all these airplanes that came about at about the same period of time that are all just these really specific 19-seat aircraft. Why? I just pulled up the Saab 2000, and it said accidents with fatalities, Raven Flight 3296. Raven is their call sign. Oh. They're also rebranded. Oh. That's their new brand. Oh. So That's what they're called so now. people don't know. Okay. So, yes, they're also known as Raven. I guess we can talk about that. But at the time, they were Pen Air. This was specifically operated by Pen Air. This was a Pen Air accident. Okay. The Saab 2000 was the really stretched version of the Saab 340. And having like seen a lot of Saab 340s, a very pretty regular looking airplane, you get used to the way the Saab... 340 looks and then you see the Saab 2000 you go my god they they really just stretched they took it and like taffy pulled it (laughs) it's really really long version of the Saab 340 so where the Saab 340 was a 19 seat airplane the Saab 2000 tended to be like a 42 seat 41 seat airplane wait I haven't pulled up this one in specific had 39 pull on board it might be 39 seats but I don't think uh 50 to 58 so a lot more seats than 19. Yes. So it was like, really, it makes it look like it went through a taffy puller because it is so much longer than the Saab 340 in fuselage length. Very similar type of aircraft, though. Similar engines, similar. I mean, everything else pretty much looks the same. They literally just stretched it. And with that said, the Saab 2000 was not a very common type of aircraft. It didn't. Nobody really wanted it. Nobody really cared. <laughs> nobody wanted it. No, not really. There was a few airlines that bought it. There's not very many of them. There's not very many left. While I have it pulled up, I can discuss who still flies them and who used to and no longer does. Sure. So currently they are flown by Freight Runners Express, Aleutian Airways, which is, I guess, Alaska. operated by Sterling Airways, Mirgrass, okay. Nix Air, mm-hmm. the Pakistan Air Force, uh-huh. the Royal Saudi Air Force, ah. Saab. Yes, which hardly exists. Zweiflig? Operated by Lippican Air. Sure. Swedish Aircraft Holdings and Wildcat Touring. And I'm guessing that most of those airlines only have one or two. The the first one I said has six, then one, two, three, ten. Pakistan Air Force. Yeah, okay. Two, two, one, one, one. Yeah, see, so most of them are operating one or two aircraft. Like, that's how not common these things are. You're not going to see them anywhere. Former operators include, but are not limited to, I'm just hitting the high points, Air France. Yes, they did have them for a short period of time. Very short. Air Marshall Islands, Crossair had some, Eastern Crossair, Airways. Crossair was the one of the biggest operators of it. Logan Air, mm-hmm. Moldovian, Pen Air, of yep, note. Of course. Scandinavian Airlines, Scandinavian Commuter. That's not all of them, but I'm not listing all of them. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. So, not a very common type of airplane. This one had the tail number November 686 Papa Alpha. This was a flight Pen Air. From, yes. Pen Air. Pen Air. PA. This is a flight from Anchorage to Unalaska. It's so Alaska, it's Unalaska. It's Unalaska. And it's spelled exactly like you think it is. According to the internet, that is how it's pronounced. It is. And they it's have a city called Unalaska? In Alaska, yes, they do. It's one of the Aleutian Islands. It is. It's one of the Alaska, <laughs> the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. So <laughs> this, yeah. Okay. Yep. It's actually one of the more populated Aleutian Islands in Alaska, and it's one of the easier to get to. 
sounds like someone just went, that's not my Alaska. It's un-Alaska. It's almost Russia. It's almost (laughs) Russia. (laughs) Oh, boy. Be Sarah Palin. You can see it from your backyard. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Is Is this where Sarah Palin lives? Yeah, I think, I think she's from Alaska. She's from Alaska. No, I mean, but... does she live in Unalaska? Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> no. I know she's from Alaska. Yes. The captain for this flight, I don't have names, was 56 years old. At the time, he had 14,761 hours total, of which 131 were on the Saab 2000. Hmm. Just 131 out of his 14,761 hours. So he knows what he's doing sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> He knows what he's doing as a pilot, doesn't know the sub as well. The first officer was 39 years old. At the time, he had 1,447 hours, so less than a tenth of what the captain had in total. And he had 138 hours on the type. So this is looking good, looking great. Yep. So he only had seven more hours than the captain did, but vastly less hours overall. The aircraft had already done one round trip to Unalaska and back to Anchorage. That day, but with a different crew. So in the morning, it had already done one full round trip. Mm -hmm. The aircraft arrived back at Anchorage at 1.02 p.m. local time, which, by the way, is just Alaska time. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Because Alaska being as far north as it is and with it stretching as far as it does should be over a lot of time zones, but it's not because Alaska does things different. Because they're Alaska. So if you live in Unalaska, the sun probably comes up and goes down at weird times when it actually does come up and go down. <laughs> when? If? <laughs> if it actually comes up and go down. Anyways. 1.55 p.m. local time, the accident flight crew reported for duty at Anchorage. Both flight crew participated in the pre-flight checks of the aircraft. 39 passengers and three crew boarded the aircraft for the flight to Unalaska. That includes one cabin crew, one whole cabin crew. The flight was operating as an Alaska Air flight, so in other words, the tickets were sold by Alaska Air. Alaska Airlines? Nope, just Alaska Air. That's all they've ever been. But what? Believe it or not, they've only ever been Alaska Air, and as a matter of fact, they're really just Alaska. That's it. No, it says Alaska Airlines. That's a lie. Alaska Airlines is a major American airline headquartered in SeaTac. Great. They are Alaska Air. They've actually really just been Alaska. Pretty much their whole history. Their website is alaskaair.com. Right. What? Lies. No, so. I, I'm convinced this is a lie. <laughs> their Twitter handle is Alaska Air. They are just Alaska Air. <laughs> I'm really upset right now. Why? It's like, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a b- b- Mandela effect. There we go. It's like finding out that Delta Airlines is actually three words. Delta, Air, and Lines. Those are three words. That is how their air. That is how the airline is actually spelled. Can you do me a favor? That's why it's D A L. Stop talking. No. <laughs> I'm going to continue. So the tickets were sold by Alaska. Typically, this was passengers connecting on from somewhere else in Alaska or from Seattle and mainland U.S. through Anchorage onto Unalaska, and they were operating essentially as a regional carrier in Alaska. But they also had a lot of their own flights, Penair, separate from sharing code sharing with alaska air but this one was specifically operating as an alaska air flight operated by penair the flight departed the gate at 3 15 p.m local time and at 3 23 p.m the flight took off from anchorage the takeoff climb and cruise portions of the flight were uneventful and they got to their destination Woo! <laughs> end of story no just kidding before they began their descent into unalaska the captain briefed the first officer on the planned rnav or area navigation approach to runway 13 this is a non-precision approach that does not much other than get you to the runway so an rnav approach is not vastly dissimilar to a gps approach per se again it is non-precision because it doesn't give you specific glide slope or altitude well you may say it is not precise right it really is not precise literally pretty much all it does is give you the waypoints to get to the runway that's pretty much it. It can it gives you step-down altitudes and stuff, but it's not much more than that. So that's why it's just called an area navigation approach, because all it does is navigate you through the area onto the approach. That's it. That's literally it. 4.24 p.m. in five seconds, the captain stated, quote, We can either go straight in. If not, we can make an early decision to go through the back door off this approach if we have to. They really mean it. The two approaches are called front door and back door. Yes, so just they have such fun names. <laughs> don't I don't like that. I don't either. I, no. 
Now, Unalaska has just one runway. We'll, we'll talk about this more later on, but to put set things up, it has just one runway, and it runs across a little section of land. Beside it is a mountain. There's water on either side of this runway, and the gist of it is you have to fly around the mountain and then approach it basically from either side, obviously. There but is a picture. One is known as the front door, and one is known as the back door. I don't know over who water. named this, but they were either being funny or oblivious. So basically, as you're flying at the flying at the airport, you have to fly around the mountain, and you either have to go through the front door or through the back door, which is why they call it the front door and the back doors, because you're entering through these little mountainous areas to get in over the water and then approach the runway. And the mountain is named Mount Ballyhoo. Yes, Mount Ballyhoo. That's a fun name for a mountain. Isn't it? It's also in the middle of Unalaska Bay. Yes, which is right next to Dutch Harbor. <laughs> so, anyways, 5.05 p.m. and 57 seconds, the first officer contacted the Unalaska Weather Observer to obtain the latest weather conditions for the airport. Seven seconds later, the Weather Observer advised of the weather at Unalaska, and the first officer acknowledged, also stating that they were about 25 minutes from landing at the airport. 5.07 p.m. and 38 seconds, the first officer contacted Anchorage Center to request the RNAV approach to runway 13. So you have to understand the airport doesn't have its own center, its own departure, its own approach control, any of those things. So it sits under the veil of the Anchorage Center control. So they're requesting this from the Anchorage Center. The air traffic controller told the crew to expect RNAV for runway 13 on Alaska. That does not mean they were cleared for it yet. 5.09 p.m. and one second, the captain called for the in-range checklist, because that's a checklist on the Saab, apparently. That means we are close enough. Let's start some checklists. The flight crew subsequently completed that checklist in less than a minute. 5.15 p.m. and 26 seconds. The air traffic controller cleared the flight for the RNAV approach and the first officer acknowledged. 5.17 p.m. and 42 seconds. So a little over two and a half minutes later. The captain called for the descent checklist. The flight crew completed that checklist less than a minute later. 5.32 p.m. and nine seconds. The captain called for flaps 20 degrees and the before landing checklist. The first officer extended the flaps and ran through the checklist and deemed it complete about 16 seconds later. 5.32 p.m. and 44 seconds, the flight crew retrieved current weather information and then discussed whether to continue with the runway 13 approach or switch to runway 31. The captain stated, quote, we'll go straight, indicating that they would continue with the runway 13 approach because that's what they already had planned. It's a little more direct. 5.33 p.m. and 30 seconds, the aircraft began descending from 950 feet above ground level. So they had already descended all the way down pretty darn close. They're on the approach, basically. Five seconds later, the first officer announced that they were crossing the missed approach decision point, 4.7 nautical miles from the runway. Six seconds later, the captain announced that he had the runway in sight. 5.35 p.m. and 27 seconds, the captain stated, quote, what do you think? End quote. And the first officer stated, go around the captain stated, going around. So they, so they were just too low? Went or? around. Nope. They just... Well, didn't like the... They didn't feel it was approach. stabilized. Didn't like how it was going. In case you were wondering, it was not stabilized. It was not stabilized. We'll talk a lot about this later on. I don't really talk about their first approach. It doesn't matter. A whole lot. That doesn't matter. But we'll talk about this later on. 5.35 p.m. and 41 seconds. The captain asked the first officer to announce that they were, quote, coming around for a visual, end quote. The first officer did so over the radio. 5.36 p.m., the flight crew then discussed the visual approach, because they were going to do a visual approach rather than an RNAV. 5.36 p.m. and 19 seconds, the captain stated, quote, we're going to go out here and do a 180 and come back in, end quote. So he planned to just fly out over the water, do a 180, come back to the airport. 5.36 p.m. and 51 seconds, the pilot of a nearby King Air asked the flight crew if they had landed. First officer responded, quote, negative, we're circling around to come back in for a visual, end quote. The King Air pilot then asked, quote, going to land on 3-1, end quote, which is the opposite end of the runway. Mm -hmm. The first officer responded, quote, coming back around for the visual 1-3, end quote. So he figures they're going to come back around, land on the same runway they initially tried to approach on. By 37 p.m. and 55 seconds, the flight crew began the before landing checklist. Flaps were again set at 20 degrees and the gear was lowered. As the aircraft ascended through 350 feet above ground level for the second attempt at landing, they began the turn to line up with the runway. They were established on the runway heading at 100 feet above ground level, and at 5.39 p.m. and 45 seconds, simultaneous to reaching 100 feet above ground level, the sink rate warning sounded twice. You might note just how fast 
they were suddenly turning onto the center line. Like, 100 feet above ground level, they're almost over the threshold as they come out on their final approach. The airplane's descent rate had reached 1,300 feet per minute down at the time, as they were just 100 feet above the ground. The captain then arrested the sink rate when the aircraft reached 90 feet, flying at 135 knots. Now, that was about the right approach speed for them. 5.39 p.m. and 54 seconds, the airplane touched down on the runway on the main landing gear. The nose landing gear touched down about one and a half seconds later. The reverse thrust was activated. Sounds pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Five to six seconds after touchdown, a thud was felt, and some squirmy controls happened. It's kind of, whoa, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all didn't see what just happened. You wiggled. The first officer made the 80-knot call-out. Less than a second later, the master caution activated in the cockpit. Another second later, the thrust reversers were at full reverse thrust. And another second after that, the first officer stated, Brakes! Then the captain replied, I got him all the way! The captain had the manual wheel braking fully pressed. So that's the toe brakes on the mm-hmm. airplane. Fully pressed. The captain stated six seconds later, hang on, quote unquote. This was followed immediately by two loud thumps. The captain then stated, I'm sliding, quote unquote. The airplane was still moving at 54 knots, but was not slowing down as fast as it had been initially. They maintained full reverse thrust and wheel braking. The airplane slowed down to 34 knots, at which time the throttles were moved from reverse to idle. The first officer advised the captain to turn to the right to avoid Dutch Harbor, which is the lake right at the end of Mm -hmm. the the runway, so he did so. 5.40 p.m. in 19 seconds, the aircraft left the end of the runway at 23 knots and crossed a grass patch before going through the perimeter fence, striking a ditch, which sheared the left landing gear, then crossed a road before coming to rest on the very rocky shore of the lake, shearing the nose gear, coming to rest with the nose pointed downhill nearly in the water. At that time, the left engine struck the rocks and the propeller blades shattered with some of the debris striking, piercing, and entering the fuselage, striking one of the passengers. Mm. The right engine had struck a seven-foot signpost, then an eight-foot sign mounted on a metal post. Why they clarified that, I have no idea, but they did. I thought that was fun. The road sign damaged the right propeller, but nothing like the left propeller, which quite literally just shattered completely. And ended up in the fuselage. In the fuselage. The aircraft had come to rest at 5.40 p.m. and 29 seconds. At 5.40 p.m. and 40 seconds, the captain used the PA to command an evacuation, directing an evacuation from the right side, as the left engine had a fire indication illuminated in the cockpit. So he was concerned that it was a flame. That couldn't possibly be because it came to a slamming halt. They also deemed that they could not use the front left exit. Yes, the normal front left. As I'm about to show Miranda, it doesn't look like a good idea. No. You, you just jump into the water. Right. You go on a little trip. Well, and the, yes, and your favorite rocket ship? Yeah. Thank you. And the rocks were not pleasant. You see that picture and yeah. it's not, not a pleasant. It doesn't look fun. Kind of rocks. It doesn't look like you want to go cliff diving no. off the airplane. Let's just say no. it that way. No. And it's probably really freaking cold. Yeah. Yes, undoubtedly. Okay. Before you continue. Yes, I don't have much more. I'm really confused. Uh-huh. I, I figured you would be. You should be. Yes, as you should. Be. I'm I'm so confused. I have he left, left out, out so many pertinent details. Okay. I have left out a very large chunk of details on purpose. They okay. were in the story. <laughs> they were in the story, but if I told you all of these details, you would inevitably have figured this out. Okay. You would have been screaming by this point. Yes. Okay, because I'm like I've saved the screaming for her part. <laughs> I have left out a lot of detail. Like part of me is like runway contamination. That was nope. a potential, but that was not the case. But part of me is like, they were slowing down, and right. he was applying brakes. And then they weren't. And right. then they weren't. And then I'm like, but but why weren't they slowing down? Right. So there's a series And I'm of very things. confused. There is a series of unfortunate events that yes. actually began earlier. Yes. Let me finish this part, and then we will get to all of that. Okay. Because there is a lot I did not cover, and you are going to get very mad. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit better that you didn't cover it, because I'm like, did I miss something? Nope, you didn't miss it. I tried to make this as confusing as possible. Oh, Did this entirely on purpose. The cabin crew member immediately commanded an evacuation. The right overwing exit opened at that same time, and the aft service door on the right side opened 12 seconds later. The crew had contacted the operations at the airport to request emergency services. The first rescue vehicle arrived at 5.42 p.m. and 42 seconds, which was about a little under three minutes after the accident. Most passengers evacuated within 90 seconds, but several injured passengers needed assistance evacuating. 
one of these passengers required extraction by the emergency personnel, needless to say, after having been, I don't know, struck by a propeller. propeller, Two passengers were rushed to a medical center, with one later being airlifted to a bigger hospital. In Anchorage. In Anchorage. The passenger that was directly struck by the propeller blade perished one day after the accident. In all, one passenger perished in the accident, one passenger was severely injured, ten were minorly injured, and then there were, then overall there were 41 survivors. So... Most of the injuries were from the evacuation. Right. That's literally my next point. Most other injuries occurred from passengers that slipped while evacuating on the wings. Because it started raining. Because it had just begun raining at the time of the accident. So they slipped on the wings and hit the rocks. Ouch. Yes. Thankfully, none of them were really that injured from that, though. The two severe injuries were because of the propeller blade. One of those, of course, perished later, which is the thing we talked about. This is part 121. This is why we lied. This is why we lied. I knew we lied the whole time. I kind of waited for this one to come up anyways. There's some reasons why the industry still doesn't consider this to be... Okay, so the lie. We had previously said that the last fatal crash by a domestic airline was in 2009. This is no longer true. Right. Because of this crash. This is a domestic airline in the U.S. Part 121 operated. It was a crash... And somebody died. So I would like to revise our former statement to say the last wholly fatal crash of a domestic airline in the United States was in 2009. Right. And because they put it into place. So many things. If you haven't been listening. Right. Or you, this is your first episode. Which Which if this is your first episode, you should go back. (laughs) Yep. You need to go back. But they implemented a lot of things in 2009 that caused it so that aviation got a lot safer. Yes. One of them being the pilot hour requirement. Yes. Requirement. Some people argue that they don't like it, but the reality is. I don't like you. The reality is in the numbers. And no matter what, that means there's only been one death due to an accident on a part 121 in a crash. Since 2009. Yes, there is one other death, and it was not because of a crash. That's why we specifically use the phrase crash. There was no hull loss. Southwest. Yes. Yeah, that's the one we're talking about. Yes. We did cover that one, too. Yep. But not a crash. But it was, you're right. It was not a crash. It was a runway overrun, because they slid. It wasn't a runway overrun. No, the uncontained uncontained engine failure. failure. And the only other exception to this is Asiana, which was not a U.S. carrier. No. So, but it was on U.S. soil, and it did kill two people, so that was the whole thing. All right. So there we go. We told the lie. We we are, revised it. We're sorry. We're not sorry. I'm sorry. I don't speak for that kid. Hey, again, <laughs> this doesn't really change much about the record. This is an unbelievably low number of. I love this, that. The, the likelihood of dying in an accident in a 121 carrier in the U.S. is so unlikely. Basically impossible. You're more likely to be attacked by a shark or struck by lightning. Right. Even the likelihood of being injured on a part 121, you're more likely to be injured by like a food cart or another person on an airplane than you are by the airplane itself. Especially during the pandemic, you're more likely to be hurt by another passenger. Anyway, this investigation was performed by the NTSB. NTSB! And I really like their new report format. It's very different. This report came out on November 2nd, 2021, and it's all fancy looking compared to previous reports. The font's different. There's a better summary at the beginning. All around, it's much more ADHD friendly. Ten out of ten. I do have one big qualm with it, but I don't. I, I mean, a lot of it was very nice. Yes, but every report from every country in history that I have ever read has always had a little box somewhere, or at least a paragraph that says injuries to persons, and it gives you all of the details about who died, who was injured, who wasn't injured. Every single report from every country, good or bad report, didn't matter, had that, and this one. Did not. You should email the NTSB. I'm mad. Yeah, excuse it's me. It's the simplest of things and they removed it. Excuse me. I, I <laughs> read these. I am displaced. For a living. Yes. <laughs> Can you please bring back the chart? I am displaced. I don't read if, them for a living, but I do any, read them If anyone from the NTSB listens, first of all. Please change this. Please email us. I want to <laughs> talk to you. That too. But also, please bring back the tiny chart that tells us what happened. Very succinctly. Yes. Anyway. Yes. Both black boxes were recovered, and all data was retrieved, including more than 40 hours of FDR data. Yay for technology. Yay for Yay. technology. They had the whole thing. Yeah. So the big question is, why did the aircraft overrun the runway? Well, you see. Based on their energy state, so, you know, like speed, 
at the touchdown location, which was on the touchdown marks. It was right on time. They touched down right where they should have. Environmental conditions and runway surface conditions, they certainly would have had the capability to stop in the distance available, if not on the runway, then at least in the runway safety area or RSA. Investigators went about analyzing several different aspects, and the cause of this accident has layers, like an onion. It's a, it's Shrek. There, it's, it's Shrek. It's I literally, over. I wrote in my notes, there's a Shrek reference. Somewhere. <laughs> there's a Shrek some, reference somewhere in this. The first thing investigators analyzed in the report was the pre-flight planning. <sighs> Bad. The forecast wind was from 270 at 15 knots gusting 25, and that was at the recommended limit for the captain because he had less than 300 hours as pilot in command in the Saab 2000. Pen Air required that both the captain and dispatcher agree that the flight could be safely conducted in the given wind conditions and that an alternate airport was detailed, and both these stipulations were met. However, there it goes. <laughs> the first part. Despite the fact that the wind was technically within the captain's limits, he and the dispatcher should have both recognized that the wind favored landing on runway 31, the opposite direction of runway 13. Yep. By the way, that's not like you don't just reverse the numbers to get the opposite. That's math. No, that is just math. That is 180 degrees from 130. There are two instances of this 3113 and 02 and 20. Yep. Just in case you were wondering. Because of the nature of the airport having surrounding mountainous terrain, the FAA required a flight risk assessment to be completed for each flight into this airport. And the assessment produced a point value. Low risk was 0 to 15 points. Caution was 16 to 25. Management had to approve medium risk from 26 to 39 points. And flights with 40 points or more were high risk and to be canceled. Yep, we've talked about some similar point systems in the past. Yep. And why they're also not necessarily very effective. Because like here. The, right. In the last instance, too, that we talked about one of these, we found like, okay, you could really easily skirt that pointage system. Uh, I think the last time we talked about it was the Kobe Bryant crash. Yes. And, of course, that didn't go very well. Right. No. So, obviously, this point system is not effective. So, the captain completed the assessment and got a result of 10 points. But he did not account for the following. Runway risk factor from the wind chart, having less than a year of experience with the company, and being more than two hours from home base. The correct assessment would have been 17 points in the caution category. No, this would not have canceled the flight, but it may have raised the captain's awareness regarding the safety factors of the flight. Next, let's discuss the decision to land on runway 13. And the go-around. Remember, they're attempting to land with a tailwind. Yes. I don't know, Nick didn't talk about this, but... Since the wind was predicted to be 270 at 15 knots, gusting 25, mm -hmm. the direction of that results in a tailwind component. Yes, it does. And this creates the need for more runway to slow down and stop. Because you have wind coming behind you, it prevents you from slowing down faster. Obviously, you're, right. you're running so, into the wind. Right. It takes more effort. To sum this up, in a very simple term, they crossed the threshold and touched down at 135 knots. Their ground speed at the time was 145. So they were moving 145 knots over the ground. But their indicated airspeed. indicated airspeed was 135 knots. That's how much wind was moving over the wing because they had tailwind. What was their requirement? I don't get to that yet. Okay. They're under the tailwind requirement as of right now. Okay. As of the briefing. Yes. At 4.57, the captain was made aware that the wind was coming from 3.10 at 11 knots. Yep. Which is a direct tailwind. Direct. <laughs> Could not be oh, more direct. Oh, so they got pushed. Well, so this is the first approach. Land, yes. So this wind obviously favored runway 3.1, and the first officer noted that they had previously flown into runway 3.1 before through the back door. I hate that phrase. At 5.06, the... Airport weather observer advised them that winds were at 210 at 6 knots gusting to 14. So that changed quite a bit. At 520, it was updated to winds from 180 to 7 knots, actually creating a small headwind. So now it's favorable to take runway 13. Right. But then at 532, winds were from 270 at 10 knots, so we're back to a tailwind. The captain decided to continue with the planned landing on runway 13. Why? Ugh. Okay. Not the worst thing yet. And... Most airliners can land with a tailwind dependent on a few factors. You have to do all your calculations before landing. Yep. Next, the flap setting. Flaps 35 degrees would lower the approach speed and therefore stopping distance because you don't need as much 
wind going over the wing to create lift. Right. But the cockpit voice recorder revealed that they never even considered going from flaps 20 to flaps 35, despite that being practiced for some company pilots. However, others did say that they prefer using 20 degrees of flaps. When interviewed, the captain stated that on final approach, he turned off the anti-ice switch and the approach became unstabilized. Why? I know they're Why? in Alaska. I know they're in Alaska, but it wasn't particularly super cold where they were. It, it doesn't matter. If you're traveling fast enough, it's going to freeze. It could. So the approach became unstabilized, at which point on the CVR, the first officer said, go around. So they re-entered VFR traffic pattern. They did not discuss how to properly manage that flight path, though I don't talk a whole lot about it. No, they kind of just really, they wung it. Winged it? Was, it. it was wung. They wonged it. They wonged it. <laughs> they were really just like, yeah, we're just going to swing around and land again. By doing this to go around, they were set up to either retry runway 13 or change to runway 31. And this was one of the biggest things I didn't talk about. And they elected to continue the second landing on runway 13. Do you talk about the conversation that actually happened? Yes. Okay. Sort of. Okay. I'll let you have this because this is a sore point. So the first officer requested the winds and learned that it was from 300 at 24 knots. Right. Right down runway 31. Uh-huh. But tailwind from runway 1. For those of you keeping track, that's a tailwind of 23 knots of landing on 1-3. Right. Per the airline manual, the limitation for the Saab 2000 is a 15-knot tailwind. <clears throat> Turns out 23 is greater than 15. Yes. Math. That's like math. second grade math. Not even. Sec- I think it was second or third grade when you learned the little alligator symbols. Probably. I, dude, I don't remember. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, during post-accident interviews, the flight crew member stated that they were aware of the tailwind limitation, but thought that the wind direction and speed did not warrant a change of the runway for landing. This is negated by the conversation had in the cockpit. Let me keep going. The flight crew's continuation, keyword, with the planned landing on runway 13, despite the knowledge of a tailwind that exceeded the manufacturer's tailwind limitation, was consistent with planned continuation bias, end quote. The first officer even asked, do you want to back out? Do it again? And the captain just didn't respond? Do you want me to go over the real conversation? Hold on, let me finish this okay, little... Okay, okay. So the first officer said, we'll try it again. And the captain said, last try. So there's more to that. Let me find it here. You might recall that the captain stated at one point, yeah, we're just going to do a 180 here and bring it back in. All he intended to do was swing it back around and land on runway 31. Because their original conversation before the first attempt at landing was, if this doesn't go well, we will come through the back door and we will land on runway 31. So now at this point, because they're going to a visual, he just figures he's going to literally fly out, do a 180 degree turn and come right back in for runway 31 instead, since their winds are more favorable. As a matter of fact, the conversation that they had... So they're landing on 1-3. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. For the second time. For the front door. Uh-huh. And they have a tailwind. Uh-huh. And this is their second time trying uh-huh. to land. And the first officer's going, hmm, maybe this isn't a good idea. Uh-huh. The captain's like, well... Uh-huh. So <laughs> here, here, I'll read this verbatim from the report. At 5.37 p.m. and 15 seconds, the captain stated 3-1 twice, and the first officer questioned 3-1. The captain then questioned back door, and the first officer stated, I thought we were doing 1-3. The captain responded, oh, okay, sure, we'll try again. At 5.37 p.m. and 41 seconds, the first officer asked the captain if he was okay with landing on runway 1-3, and the captain responded, quote, I was thinking about going the other way and sheer, end quote. During a post-accident interview, the first officer stated that the wind-checked information did not indicate that the planned runway for landing needed to change. Okay. So you see why this so was like a thing. They're like con- like confused. Like the captain doesn't even realize which way they're going. No, the captain knows exactly which way they're going, but he just figured they were going to turn around and go 1-3-1. But it seems that in the first officer's mind, he was already made up that they were going to reattempt for runway 1-3. And the captain's like, sure, I don't care. I guess we'll go for it again. Give it another try. Do we not care about winds? Just putting that out there? Right. So this is an example of continuation bias, which we have talked about before. The closer you are to an airport, to your destination, you want to just keep going. And sometimes that's in spite of various safety factors. 
The NTSB deemed the decision to continue landing on runway 13 as intentional, inappropriate, and indicative of planned continuation bias. Yep. They crossed the threshold at 127 knots and touched down at 125 knots indicated airspeed or a ground speed of 142 knots. Maximum reverse power was applied at 100 knots and the first officer called out brakes and the captain said, I got him all the way. But they were not decelerating as expected and there were alarm enunciations related to the anti-skid brake system. Yep. Which is a great segue into the mechanical factors of this accident. Investigators began investigating the brake and wheel tire systems, starting with the pre-flight inspection, going all the way back to Anchorage. Yep. Actually, I don't know if this happened in Anchorage or if it happened before that. It did happen in Anchorage because that's where the crew took over. The first officer noted a flat spot on the left main landing gear outboard tire and took a picture to show the captain who said it wasn't of concern because it wasn't courting and Penair didn't require them to take any further action. The NTSB took a look at said picture and agreed that there were no plies showing on the tire, but there was an absence of grooves on the flat spot, indicating that the tire should have been replaced. Which is pretty much an FAA standard. All aircraft, from small to large, have these grooves, and it is the indicator. It's not when you reach the cord, it's when you reach the bottom of the groove, much like your tire, but these are very specific wear marks that they put on these tires. When you get to the bottom of that groove, it's time to replace it. It had been 16 flights or four days since the last line check of the tire, and there was not a flat spot reported during that check. The absence of grooves did not result in loss of braking ability, however. Investigators then looked at the same tire after the accident and found two major wear marks. The first contained the previously noted flat spot, and this was the part involved in the initial skid. The wear marks indicated that the tire was inflated while skidding on this section of tire, but as it continued wearing during the skid, the plies became reduced so they couldn't maintain the pressure and the tire burst. Remember that whole thud and the squirmy thing? So it's like when you blow a tire on a car. Yep. Yeah. It went pop. It went woo. It went pop at a hundred. <laughs> it went woo. It went pop at a hundred and something miles an hour. Oh. <laughs> And they actually proved this on video. After that, it began wearing on the opposite side of the tire, which had skid marks from when the tire was flat. So why was it skidding, you may ask? This is an important thing. The aircraft has an anti-skid brake system for just this reason. When you lock up the brakes, it shouldn't actually lock them up. Instead, it should be alternating which ones come to a stop. Let me, let me get the bell. That's how your anti-skid system works in your car. That's what I was going to say. It's the same thing in a car. Mm -hmm. That's why you don't fishtail in a car anymore. Right. So continue into the real breakdown of this. How does the anti-skid system work? You may ask. When Nick's not interrupting you. Sorry. Each wheel has a wheel speed transducer, which is a fancy way of saying each wheel has a thing that measures its speed as it's spinning. And if while braking the wheel isn't turning, it means it's skidding. So the anti-skid system will relieve brake pressure from that tire as well as companion on the other side. The two inboard tires are paired together and so are the two outboard tires. So that way, if one inboard tire skids, both will be relieved by the anti-skid system. So just to avoid asymmetric braking, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what went wrong with the system that the anti-skid did not apply to the outboard tires and the left outboard tire kept skidding? Investigators ran through the wire harness connecting the wheel speed transducers to the anti-skid system and found that the two left wheel transducers were switched. What? The the outboard tire transducer was routed to the inboard anti-skid control unit, and the inboard transducer was routed to the outboard control unit. So when the inboard wheels, the inside wheels, were supposed to be locking up, the outside ones were instead, and vice versa. So when the outboard tire began skidding, the system relieved braking off of the inboard tires, meaning that we have effectively lost braking from three of the four main landing gear tires. Right, so all of a sudden it was like, I don't know what to do. Uh Uh-huh. And how the... Did that happen? Turns out pretty easily. Yes, that's a great question that they answered. The last main landing gear overhaul was in January 2017, which had to have been when this mix-up occurred. But how wasn't it detected sooner? Well, the first revenue flight for this aircraft wasn't until June 2019, only four months before the accident. It was on the ground for a while. It was on the ground for a hot minute. Investigators determined that the system does not generate an error if you mix up the two. Yeah, it doesn't know. And the only way to detect such an error would be in the event of a significant unrelieved skid event. Uh, like this. This one. Yeah. This is one of those. This is uh-huh. it. <laughs> they found it. Yep. <laughs> they found it too late. The system, you may have noticed, threw master caution warnings because the skid wasn't being relieved. Quote, 
The NTSB notes that, according to the aircraft performance study for this accident, the airplane should have had adequate performance capability to stop one within the landing distance available on runway 13 with one anti-skid circuit inoperative and both engines operating at maximum reverse power and two near the RSA blast pad transition point with one anti-skid circuit inoperative and both engines operating at ground idle power. The NTSB concludes that the Saab 2000 could tolerate all of these conditions at the time of the accident, except for loss of main landing gear wheel braking in excess of 50%. Thus, the combined loss of the left and right inboard and left outboard main landing gear wheel braking prevented the crew from stopping the airplane on the runway, end quote. Even if they had continued with this, as they should not have, yep. given the wind conditions, right? if it weren't for this loss of braking, they would have been fine. Yep. Well, that's why I was confused. I'm like, they're braking. Yep. They have full reverse thrust. It's not like the there's no runway contamination. It's not icy. Right. But as they proceeded down the runway, they got less and less and less braking capability. And there's nothing they could have done about that. No, because it wasn't their fault. Right. Although they shouldn't have landed period. on that runway. That's still the big thing. Like, they shouldn't have been landing on runway 13. To be fair. So there are layers. There are layers. There are multiple things. Now, that said... And this does come up in the findings, I think. It's either in the findings. I think it's in the findings. If the braking system hadn't had all those issues... They would have landed. They'd have stopped. That's what I just said. Yep. I just said that. Yeah, 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 I know. So that whole thing to me is like, okay, they would have gotten away with the stupid. (laughs) (laughs) When you put it that way. (laughs) If there wasn't a variety of stupid happening. (laughs) But also this problem, which drew attention to the stupid... And unfortunately made it a reality. So And cost someone his life. Yes. Very unfortunately. That's, that's all for, I got. That's it for this half. We'll take a break. And we'll come back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. All right. So we do have all the normal things, the findings, the cause, and the recommendation. So I'm going to go through the findings. There were 17 of them, I think. I'm not doing all 17. Thank you. Yes, there are 17. I am doing a lot of them, actually, but I am not doing all 17. They found that the flight crew's decision to land on a runway with a reported tailwind that exceeded the airplane manufacturer's limit was intentional, inappropriate, and indicative of plan continuation bias. All the things we talked about really summed up pretty well. They found that the captain demonstrated inadequate aeronautical decision-making skills regarding which runway to use for landing and a lack of flight deck leadership by continuing the landing on a runway with significant tailwind. That's the whole part of the discussion that I came up with. That's the whole, that whole thing that I talked about, that discussion they had in the cockpit after their missed approach when they were like, oh, I thought we were going to land on runway 31. Oh, I thought we were going to land on runway 13. Yeah, sure, why not? I don't care. No, you should care. <laughs> because also, you're making a landing that literally shouldn't be possible. Like, it, it's against... The manufacturer's recommendation for the airplane, how to handle the airplane. It's outside of the operating limits, so don't. But they did anyway. So that's the whole thing is like he kind of lacked leadership in that moment and saying like, no, sorry, but we're going to land on runway 31. That's yeah, where we're going. That's what I was Because like... I don't even feel like the, the first officer wasn't being argumentative either. I think if he had said, no, we're going to land on runway 31 due to the wind. I don't think the first officer would have argued with him. No, I think it was just like, eh. Eh, I don't care. Right, sure, whatever. whatever. We'll try it again. Which like... Not a great idea. No, it wasn't. The next four findings are all pretty much tied together, so I'm just going to go ahead and read them off. They found that the incorrect routing of the wheel speed transducer wire harness most likely occurred during the landing gear manufacturer's overhaul of the left main landing gear and was undetected by Penner. Because such incorrect routing cannot be discovered unless a significant unrelieved skid event happens. They found that as a result of the crossed wiring of the left main landing gear wheel speed transducers, the anti-skid system responded to the left outboard tire skid by completely releasing the brake pressure to the left and right main landing gear inboard wheels. They found that because the anti-skid system could not alleviate the left main landing gear 
outboard tire skid. The tire subsequently burst and resulted in an additional loss of main landing gear wheel braking. And finally, they found the Saab 2000 could tolerate all the conditions at the time of the accident except for a loss of main landing gear wheel braking in excess of 50%. Thus, the combined loss of left and right inboard and left outboard main landing gear wheel braking prevented the flight crew from stopping the airplane on the runway. All four of those kind of tie together. It's that string of like, this happened, so this happened, so this happened, so this is why the accident happened. Right. Like, <laughs> they tied it all to that wheel transducer, the anti-skid transducer. So, obviously, that's a big problem here. Really, that's what ultimately caused them to leave the end of the runway. Yes. On top of having a tailwind. When you get pushed down the runway, it turns out. Yes. And then you don't have any brakes. Yeah. To go along with it. They found that a more robust design of the Saab 2000 wheel speed transducer wire harness that protects against human error could mitigate the potential for the incorrect installation of the harness. Make it idiot-proof. Yeah, I feel like they <laughs> should know that by now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, don't make them look the same. Don't make them easy to place in the wrong what's, port. What, what's the thing it is. we talked about where it like the similar thing happened where uh, they look the same? Up, 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 up. It's the, 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 the ATR. The ATR 42 and fuel, 72 fuel, fuel indicator. Yeah, yeah, fuel indicator. They look exactly the same. And they fit in the same slot. Yeah. That's the real problem, right? And it's it's like, like you can put one in the other. Like, okay, You want to hear how simple this is? So I have this heated blanket. Yeah, yeah. That the cord from it disconnects, you know, so you can wash the damn thing. It's got three little pins, just like most plugs. But if it weren't for the idiot-proofness of it, you could invert how that goes. And I'm sure that would affect the uh, working capability the of something. polarization and the blah, blah, blah. Which matters when you're trying to heat something, usually. There is a slot in the plug. Right, it's just a little... A slot in the socket. Right. It's just a little slit between two of the pins, not between all three. It's like between just two of them. There's a slit. And it is asymmetric. Right. So that, so that you, you cannot put it in the other way. That's how stupid simple this could be. Right. Just do A that. little plastic tab. It would cost you a cent, maybe. Right. It's unbelievable how easy it is to idiot-proof things like this. I just, like, we've covered so much stuff where maintenance people just, like, aren't paying attention or something. And, like, yeah. the wrong Well, and somewhere. to be fair, this is an easy one to mess up from what it sounds like, which is why they're like, maybe the manufacturer just should have redesigned this. Well, and maybe that's <laughs> true, but it's also, like, the manufacturer, when you're manufacturing something like this, like a giant thing that carries people through the sky. I know you should assume that maintenance is somewhat competent, but also assume, assume stupidity. Right. <laughs> assume everyone's an idiot. The next point that they had still ties in with this and is just about as alarming, actually. They found that the potential for cross-wiring of wheel speed transducer harnesses during installation or maintenance exists for other airplane types. So it's not just the Saab 2000 they found this on. They're like, oh, you could actually do this on... A lot of things. A lot of airplanes. Which is really dangerous. Which is a big problem. Turns <laughs> out, and people died. And people died. So that's a whole thing. They found that Penair's decision to allow the captain to operate at Unalaska Airport as a pilot in command without meeting the pilot in command airport qualification criteria was inconsistent with company policy to ensure the necessary skill and experience level to operate at the airport. So literally within their own company, they said, you have to have this amount of experience to fly into Unalaska and you have to be trained on it specifically because it is such a unique airport. He didn't have that. So why was he operating the flight again? They didn't have anybody else. We'll talk about that later on. They found that the captain might not have fully understood the challenges associated with landing the Saab 2000 at Alaska Airport because he had not achieved the experience that the company designated pilot-in-command airport qualification policy intended. They found that deficiencies associated with Penair's safety management system decreased its effectiveness and resulted in reduced pilot feedback to management about safety concerns. So in other words, anytime a captain or a first officer was like, hey, I have a problem with the way we're doing this, or I noticed something was wrong, they couldn't effectively get that translated to the company, which is a big problem. All airlines and all, actually all even like operators in the industry period tend to have an SMS or a safety management system in place where you have to report these things. Uh-huh. I am innately familiar <laughs> with an SMS since I work for an airline. So I know how this works and I deal with this SMS very regularly. So it's important to have these kinds of things because you say, and, you know, they go down to the smallest level, like very, very simple things. And you just say, hey, I think this is a problem. And then that allows you to put in place corrective actions so that this doesn't happen company-wide, things like that. And it's, it's 
you know, they can be very small things that basically could be inconsequential, but it's still important. So the safety management systems are important. And if it's not getting translated to the company, then what's the point of them? What's the point? So that's a whole thing. They found that the Federal Aviation Administration's oversight of Pan Air during the two years before the accident was insufficient to identify safety risks resulting from the company's bankruptcy, reduced root structure, loss of experienced pilots, acquisition, and merger. Did you catch all that? <sighs> Here's why Pan Air changed a lot, and I was going to save this discussion for later, but this is a really important point because this actually is some of what stemmed this accident as well. Actually, it's a lot of what stemmed this accident as well because Pan Air went through some very big financial issues. They went through a restructuring, a merger. You know, they changed their route system. They... Seems like some aircraft were down for the count for yeah, a while. Yeah, you might have noticed that this aircraft was parked for over two years. And on top of that, they had some new pilots hired after a bunch of them left <laughs> or were laid off. So Pen Air had a lot of things to do in a very short period of time, and they didn't... They weren't keeping up with it over that two-year period. And because of that, they're stating here specifically the FAA's oversight of Pen Air was really poor while they were going through all these things. Because this is a really high time for things to go wrong within a company and for things to get missed. And the FAA wasn't paying attention. Right. And I was talking about this a little bit earlier while we were discussing this accident before we started recording. Pen Air in and of themselves had done a lot of things during this period of time or before and after the accident. Some really interesting things that are still going on now. Because this really isn't just that much later. This is four years later. So the whole thing with this is Pen Air had decided they were going to start operating in the lower 48 for the first time ever. And it was really strange because, like, there aren't very many times where these little airlines in Alaska decide we're going to go into mainland U.S., which is an oversaturated and very difficult market compared to Alaska. Right. Where they specialize and they can do these kinds of things. They went into the mainland U.S. here in Denver of all places, and decided this is where they were going to start a new little hub for their operations. Which, by the way, I have zero recollection of this. Right. They did this for a very brief period of time, just a handful of years ago. And when they did, they only operated, I think, one or two routes at the time. They had all of these plans to go all of these places all over the middle of the United States, mostly from like Denver to Montana and Idaho and South Dakota and North Dakota and all these places, mostly north of here, eventually connecting onto Seattle and then onto their market in Alaska. But the whole point of that is they were going to try to code share with like United and Alaska, and they were going to try to be part of the market down here and kind of become another regional carrier. Again, they operated like two routes, really found no financial success. They went into deep problems. They cut that immediately. It lasted very short. It was a very short period of time that they operated that. So their venture in the lower 48 didn't work. Okay, great. They went up in Alaska. They kind of restructured everything, started again, operating as this code share thing for Alaska Air. And as well as their own flights, they have since rebranded into Raven and their company owners, as well as a few other major company players in Alaska, have decided to start a new venture. And this is going to be the regional carrier for it, Raven. They have decided to start Northern Pacific Airlines, which is a very Iceland Air archetype where they run on the same model that Iceland Air has. Mm. They bought up a bunch of old 757s and they're going to operate these from the lower 48 of the United States through Anchorage over to Asia. So Anchorage being their stopover, much like Iceland is for Europe for Iceland Air. Now, because the Pacific is larger than the Atlantic, they have a very limited market they can actually reach with the 757. Their plan is to go much bigger in the future, but they want to create a low cost airline that can do all these things. And Raven or Pen Air is to be their regional carrier within Alaska, and they're going to do the unlimited layover thing, much like Iceland Air does. So that's just to put some context into, like, why, at this time, the FAA, they really should be paying attention because there are so many things going on with this company that really are very important. They're going through some of, like, the biggest changes any airline goes through in a very short period of time. Bankruptcy, restructuring, mergers, acquisitions, pilot shortages, reroutings, new airline, new name, new venture, new aircraft. Like, they are doing it all. In a matter of just a few years. So this is important. And this is why this is when things go wrong. So the NTSB felt it was really important to call out the FAA and say, you are really, dropping the ball on this. You really should be paying attention. <laughs> like, yeah. This is a really high time for this airline to mess things up. <laughs> and they did. Their safety management system sucked. Their pilot training sucked. Their crew resource management sucked. Yeah. Like it just was 
it all went wrong for them mm-hmm. during this period of time. They still exist. They're still operating under a new name. Things have happened, you know, after this accident, things have happened up there that have made this a really centric thing where they have to fix it. So it's been a really focal point for the FAA up in Alaska. So that is, a, of course, a thing. Two more of these. We'll close them out. These two are tied together. They found that the accident airplane would have been able to stop within a run within a runway safety area that was suitable for the approach speed and size of the Saab 2000. So it would have been able to stop. But if they actually had a big enough runway safety area, which I did not talk about. Right. This airport didn't have enough. So tied to that, they found that during the process of authorizing an air carrier to operate its aircraft at specific airports, the consideration of runway safety area dimensions for runways of intended use could help increase the aircraft's margin of safety if a runway excursion were to occur. I.e., if you decide to operate a Saab 2000, which is a pretty sizable airplane into a very short runway, i.e. on Alaska, you should make sure that the runway end safety area can support that aircraft in the event that, I don't know, it runs off the end of the runway just like this. Right. And they didn't, they weren't doing that. They still are kind of on the margins of doing this. And that was the FAA's responsibility, just to be clear. Yep. So that's it on the findings. The probable cause. As always. Uh Uh-huh. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the landing gear manufacturer's incorrect wiring of the wheel speed transducer harnesses on the left main landing gear during overhaul. The incorrect wiring caused the anti-skid system not to function as intended, resulting in the failure of the left outboard tire and a significant loss of the airplane's braking ability, which led to the runway overrun. Contributing to the accident were 1. Saab's design of the wheel speed transducer wire harnesses, which did not consider and protect against human error during maintenance. 2. The Federal Aviation Administration's lack of consideration of the runway safety area dimensions at Unalaska Airport during the authorization process that allowed the Saab 2000 to operate at the airport. And 3. The flight crew member's inappropriate decision due to their planned continuation bias to land on a runway with a reported tailwind that exceeded the airplane manufacturer's limit. The safety margin was further reduced because of Penair's failure to correctly apply its company-designated pilot-in-command airport qualification policy, which allowed the accident captain to operate at one of the most challenging airports in Penair's route system with limited experience at the airport and in the Saab 2000 airplane. And you can't expect the first officer to have that experience either because they were both very Uh new to the Saab. So that's a whole thing. So layers. Layers. Both crew had operated into this airport before, by the way, but this was kind of the exception because they were dealing with really changing winds. They were dealing with tailwind, all that stuff. All right, some recommendations. They recommend identifying all currently certificated transport category airplanes for which system safety assessments for landing gear systems did not consider human error that could lead to cross-wiring of anti-skid brake system components, including the wheel speed transducers, and require manufacturers of transport category airplanes without such assessments to perform the assessments and then implement mitigations to prevent cross-wiring of anti-skid brake system components. All of that to say, identify all of the airplanes that have this same problem with the cross-wiring thing where it's a potential and idiot-proof them. Yes. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. They recommend requiring organizations that design, manufacture, maintain aircraft to establish a safety management system. SMS. This is like, I think now an annual thing on the NTSB's most wanted list. Pretty much it is. Where they're saying that manufacturers and maintenance facilities should have SMS so that they can identify problems within their own organizations, much like airlines do for their own processes. They recommend notifying principal operations inspectors and frontline managers about the circumstances of this accident and emphasize the importance of existing Federal Aviation Administration guidance for detecting and mitigating the safety risks that can result when certificate holders experience significant organizational change, such as high personnel turnover, a reduction to route structures or flight schedules, bankruptcy, acquisition, and merger, since they did all of those things. So they're saying, basically, that the FAA should just be involved. The principal inspectors for the airlines that are designated by the FAA and work for the FAA should be very aware of when these things are happening and be very attuned to how this can affect the airline. They should be watching very closely when these things happen. They recommend revising Order 8900.1, Flight Standards Information Management System, to include a formalized transition procedure to be used during a changeover of certificate management team personnel responsible for overseeing a certificate holder that is undergoing significant organizational change for a reason described in Volume 6, Chapter 2, Section 18 of the order to ensure that incoming personnel are fully aware of potential safety risks. All that to say, when you lose the personnel that watch over the certificates of pilots and making sure that they're actually certified to fly in and out of certain places and when they're scheduling them, making sure that those personnel are well-trained or that somebody is still aware of this happening or that you limit your operations until that happens. Right. So, 
They recommend including the runway design code for runways of intended use among the criteria assessed with authorizing a scheduled air carrier to operate its airplanes on a regular basis at an airport certificated under the Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 139. I love that word, certificated. Certificated. So the whole thing with that is they're saying basically if you're going to operate an airplane, you really should consider everything about the airport before you do into it. Yeah, would be a good idea. Pretty important thing. That's really it for like the, the important recommendations that they have. They then repeat three of those about the anti-skid system to the EASA and the European Union. Because obviously anything that applies here, they're saying, okay, but Saab is produced over there. So <laughs> you need to fix this too. To the Saab group specifically, they recommend redesigning the wheel speed transducer wire harness for the Saab 2000 airplane to prevent the harness from being installed incorrectly during maintenance and overhaul. Idiot proof it. Idiot proof it. Specifically to Saab. That's it. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. That was the lie. That was the big lie. All this time. The big lie. The big lie. That was Pen Air. I don't... 3296. 3296. There you go. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. We don't have any listener questions. No, we do not. No, we do not. Not today. And if you have questions, you can submit them on our website. Yes, Yeah, the website, which means you should go look at the website because I spend a good portion of my time doing the website. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Remember to check out the Patreon, which clearly some of you have been doing. And thank, thank you. Thank you. Yes, like, thank you. That's the reason we can keep this running. Yep. <laughs> so we appreciate it. Keep that's, it going. That's how we pay Paige. That's, yeah. So that we don't want to like jump off a cliff because we're so busy yes. trying to edit at the same time. Yep. Thank you so much to our current patrons. Thank you for any support you give, though. Like, listening in general. Yes. Thanks for ordering merch. We have had some recent merch orders. Yes. Thanks. Keep doing that. We also ordered some stuff. (laughs) Yes. Keep doing that. Please. Much appreciated. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.